Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Hello, America. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. But stand by. I I want to go down a, a necessary rabbit hole here. Just one small peek behind the curtains here. Radio stations that do talk and news are kind of divided into three camps. News, news talk, and talk. Uh, News stations are pure news. News talk does news and also has political commentary like me. And then talk stations just have talk show hosts. They don't really do the news. Uh, I am mostly on news talk stations, and, and I have always been a news junkie. My passion is news. And I frankly think that a secret to success for radio stations in America that do talk is to also do news. So if there is, for example, breaking news in the middle of my monologue, I will very often, more likely than not, stop what I'm talking about and get to the big breaking news. If there, for example, a couple weeks ago, the uh, Donald Trump arraignment, I covered that live. I was watching on TV, narrating for a radio audience what was happening, using my legal background to try to explain it. Or Merrick Garland had uh, indictments a couple weeks ago. I guess there were some big indictments. We carried it live. Uh, And and my thinking is a lot of people are moving to podcasts. I'm the last guy in radio, I think, who really wants to be in radio first. Uh, Everybody can have a podcast. It's easy to do a podcast. Very few podcasts are really worth listening to. But on radio, you got to hold an audience, keep an audience, keep them engaged and entertained. And I think you should cover the news of the day so that people aren't thinking, well, I can listen to the podcast later. No, you need to listen now because there might be breaking news happening. That's not going to be relevant later in the podcast. You can be on the bleeding edge of what's current. And oftentimes, then I have to make some editorial decisions myself on here is a story. I feel passionately that this is a big story. And I need to cover it. But also, this may not be the biggest story the audience cares about. And I don't want them to flip over for what is to them the big story and and lose you as a listener for an hour while you go somewhere else. But occasionally I get to a story where I've just got to persuade you this is the big story. I have put this off to the third hour of the program today because I know in reality there are other stories that are bigger than this one that needed to be covered first, but this actually is a really big story. And I need your attention on this one. Uh, This actually comes from Marco Rubio in Compact Magazine today. What has the Biden administration said all along about the border crisis? We don't need to build a wall. We need to deal with the root causes what is causing people to come to this country from Central and South America. They sent, this administration did, Kamala Harris to Central and South America to dive into root causes, to stem the tide of illegal immigration from uh, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and the like. One of the root causes of illegal immigration to this country is crime in Central America. Now, there was a mass shooting over the weekend at an Alabama birthday party. The media has focused a lot on it. I have not because it is 
these sorts of, of acts of violence at these these events are, are sadly more and more common, less and less newsworthy. It, it, this happens in the south side of Chicago. It, it's just uncommon because it happened in Alabama, not the south side of Chicago. But it's not like the shooting at the school in Nashville or at the bank in Louisville, Kentucky. But these sorts of things are even more common in Central America. If you are concerned about illegal immigration in this country, you should be concerned with gang violence in Central America. Overwhelmingly, the reason we have a a wave of human uh, victims of uh, the southern border coming into this country are they're victims of gang activity. In El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, parts of Mexico, you will have a gang member show up on your doorstep and say, tomorrow you will pay us 1,000 American dollars or your family will die. That's not an exaggeration. That actually happens. Someone will show up at your door, say, you must pay this amount of money that is more than the family has, or you will all be murdered. And they are expected to go beg and plead with people to give them the money to save their lives. And inevitably what happens is they pack their stuff up and they start walking north for safety. So Kamala Harris, when she goes south of the border to deal with the root causes of immigration, it's a gang violence problem. And yet there's a problem. What the Biden administration preaches is not what they are practicing. Exhibit A is El Salvador. In a span of two days, March 25th and 26th of 2022, 100 people died in El Salvador because of gang violence. So the following day, President Nayib uh, Bukele, I may be pronouncing his name, mispronouncing his name, he decided to crack down on gangs. He summoned the El Salvadorian legislature, announced a state of emergency, and he directed the military to round up the gangs, and they did it. It wasn't just low-level thugs or a handful of gang leaders. It was the gangs. They were rounded up. And overnight, El Salvador became fairly safe. It's kind of stunning, actually. They rounded all these people up. Children within 72 hours were able to play on soccer fields where they had not been able to go just two days before because of the bullets. Families now go out at night in El Salvador. Businesses sell their wares. They haven't had to pay protection money to gangs in a year. People are now free. The president's popularity is 90%. 90%. Think about that. Public shootouts were commonplace. If you resisted the extortion, you were murdered. According to Marco Rubio, he met with parents who told him their son was killed for their refusal to pay protection money. And that was the daily reality until the mass shootout in March of last year when the president decided to crack down. The president is democratically elected. He is a young man. And the Biden administration has decided to impose sanctions on him. Why? Because they say the way he cracked down on gangs was anti-democratic. 
They've now imposed sanctions on members of his government for helping with the crime crackdown. They have glorified Fidel Castro. They have sought to loosen sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela. But the El Salvadorian leader has been branded an emerging dictatorship and illiberal because with the backing of his parliament and military, he has rounded up all the gangs and suddenly the people fleeing El Salvador for the American border has gone to virtually zero. So he's done what the Biden administration has demanded be done. He's cracked down on crime, the root cause of illegal immigration from El Salvador. He has cracked down on it. And the result is he has stemmed the tide of illegal immigration from El Salvador to the United States. And the result is a 90% approval rating. And the result is the Biden administration has decided, well, this guy's becoming a dictator. We got to stop working with him. Colombia is flirting with Moscow and Beijing because the Biden administration has decided that uh, they are authoritarian. And this is the Biden administration's fundamental problem. It is the problem of the left in America today. Any government that has a heavy hand against criminal elements, they've decided, oh, well, you're just like Trump. We can't support you. We've got to support the opposition. And what's happening is these countries are fleeing to Moscow and Beijing. This is the, 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 this is what Jimmy Carter screwed up the country. There will be lots of worshipful hagiography when Jimmy Carter dies. The reality is that Jimmy Carter's foreign policy was anathema for much of the world and pushed a lot of countries into the hands of Moscow during the Cold War because these countries knew if they were perceived at all by Jimmy Carter of being anti-democratic, they might as well go be embraced by Moscow because Washington would have nothing to do with them and they were trying to keep their people safe and that's what's happening in El Salvador. Y'all, the president of El Salvador, democratically elected, worked with the, the parliament of El Salvador, the military of El Salvador, wiped out violent crime in El Salvador virtually Virtually overnight, and the Biden administration's response was, well, you did it the wrong way, therefore we're going to impose sanctions. It's hard to overstate what has happened. The New York Times ran a story on April 9th when the MS-13 gang ran the neighborhoods of Las Margaritas one of its strongholds in El Salvador, there were rules you had to follow to stay alive. You couldn't wear the number eight because it was associated with the rival 18th Street Gang. You couldn't wear the brand of sneakers the gangsters wore, and you could not, under any circumstances, ever call the police. People couldn't complain to the police because of what the boys would say. They became the authority. El Salvador, the smallest country in Central America, was once known as the Hemisphere's murder capital with one of the highest homicide rates anywhere in the world outside of war zones. But in the years since the government declared a state of emergency to quell gang violence, deploying the military on the streets in force, the nation has undergone a remarkable transformation. Children play soccer late into the evening on fields that were gang turfs. Ms. Inglésis gather soil for her plants next to an abandoned building the residents say was used for gang killings. Homicides have plunged. Extortion payments imposed by gangs on businesses and residents, once an economy unto itself, have declined. You can walk freely, Ms. Inglis says. 
So much has changed. El Faro, El Salvador's leading news outlet, surveyed the country earlier this year and delivered an assessment. The gangs largely do not exist anymore. But the achievement, critics say, has come at an incalculable price. Mass arrests that swept up thousands of innocent people, the erosion of civil liberties, and the country's descent into an increasingly autocratic police state. Most Salvadorians appear willing to accept that deal. Fed up with the gangs that terrorize them and force them to flee, the vast majority of people here support the measures and the president behind them. El Salvador's president has become one of the world's most popular leaders. Hondurans chanted his name and cheered him at his inauguration last at the inauguration of their president last year. People want safety. He has delivered it. And so the Biden administration has turned on him because they say he's done it in an authoritarian manner. Would Joe Biden rather more El Salvadorians come to the border or will he deal with an authoritarian who has rounded up the gangs and kept people safe? This is the problem. The progressives in this country want it both ways. They do not want the illegal immigrants coming to the country. They say they want to stem, uh, sort out the root causes. So some guy does in Central America, but he doesn't do it in the way they want it. And so they're punishing him. And that's going to lure him into the hands of Beijing and Moscow. It's going to undermine our national security when he is helping us at the border. This idea that Joe Biden has embraced from the Jimmy Carter administration is going to hurt us in Central and South America. It's going to allow access for Beijing and Moscow. And the left doesn't care because the left would rather these people in Central America be gunned down in gang violence so long as the president doesn't throw people in jail in a way they don't like than to have these people be safe. They would rather El Salvadorians die then have them live because for them to live, the president was a little bit too tough to gangs. This is going to have catastrophic effects around the world as Joe Biden's foreign policy continues to drive so many countries, democratically elected leaders, into the hands of Moscow and Beijing because they may be Democrats, but they didn't do things the way Joe Biden thinks they should be done. Thank you to Marco Rubio for putting this on my radar. It needs to be on your radar as well. The ramifications of this are devastating for our foreign policy abroad and for the stability of Central and South America. Welcome. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be part of the program, let me jump to the phones here. Lucas, you're going to be up next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. uh, First-time caller. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Sure. I just uh, um, you're just uh, pray, praying for your wife and your family, and y'all are all my hearts and the hearts of my family. So I just wanted you to know that first and Thank foremost. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just called to talk about the fight for life. I just mm-hmm. don't. It's just um, on my heart. I'm passionate about. I, I just don't want the Republicans and the GOP to 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 pull back or fall into this trap of thinking that the fight for life or is 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 a losing issue i just want them to walk with integrity into the fight head on into the fight articulate the the reasons for the fight for life articulate those truths lay them out for the american people and just just embrace the fact and 
I just don't want them to pull back or or get caught up in this narrative that that um, they can't win on that on that issue because um, you know I I just want them to, to to fight for it because the evangelical vote is a is a powerful vote um, it's and it's it, it's important for for whoever the candidate may be. So I just want them to, to, to articulate their points, lay out the argument to the American people in a, in a, in a positive way. And just because um, we hear so much about the, the human rights and the, 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 the rights of women, the rights of these different groups. Well, these are future women in the, in the womb. These are future um, people from all segments of all races. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, I got to say, there's this mythology, I think, the the media and the left tend to be of the same view on this, and they see uh, abortion as a vulnerability for the GOP, particularly with women. But I I look, for example, at Brian Kemp in Georgia. Stacey Abrams went after him hard on this issue. He signed a fetal heartbeat ban in a state that's considered a swing state, and he won. Because while it was an issue and it gravitated him to his base and alienated him from some progressive women, he focused on good governance, competency, jobs, the economy, crime, and those issues weighed out. There will be progressive portions of the country that refuse to go to the right because of abortion. There are a lot of swing areas of the country where for some people it's a big issue, but most people are concerned about going to work and being safe. And if you focus on those issues, you don't have to abandon the pro-life stance to win. Very few people have ever lost a race for being pro-life. It tends to be other issues that affect the race. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number, 877-973-7425. To the phones we go. Eric, you're going to be up next. Welcome. Hello, Eric. How are you today? Good. How are you? God bless you. Uh Great name, but you spelled it incorrectly. <laughs> Actually, Look, it ends with I a C. I got the best of both worlds. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have actually maybe a recommendation, two part. First part is with respect to abortion. If a my recommendation, I don't know, you know, could be incorrect. If I were running for public office and they asked me what my thoughts were on abortion, I would say uh, no comment. Next question. Okay, that's part one. And then part two is a recommendation again or your thoughts on why doesn't the Republican Party all pull together all of their money when they're running for campaign next campaign season instead of doing all these individual commercials? Because I saw what they did for Herschel Walker was kind of weak. But pull together their money and just put together a, you know, a whiz-bang commercial, uh, no holds barred, gloves off on showing the border crisis, uh, uh, the, you know, things going on in New York, uh, New York City with the subway stuff, showing things on San Francisco, and then maybe even going as far as having some some bearded big man on a soccer field with college-age women. (laughs) You know, uh, well, winning the okay. So let, let, let me let me start with the second first. Um, it's, there are federal laws uh, that govern coordination between uh, political entities, so they they can't pool their money. They're prohibited by federal law from doing so. 
so every each of these groups goes at their own angle, uh, finds the issues. And then a lot of them are, for example, depending on the pack, they're interested in fiscal issues or social issues. Uh, the different Republican groups have a, a different missions, different pollsters who come up with different conclusions about what they should or should not cover. Uh, if they were to coordinate together, it would be a violation, a, a legal violation, and as a result, they can't do that. Now, on the first issue, uh, I I don't think any candidate can say no comment on abortion, nor should they. There aren't a lot of candidates who have ever lost election because of their pro-life stance. It is defensible, and it is particularly defensible uh, when you argue federalism, that what's good in my state may not be good on your, in your state. Therefore, uh, we, should, we should let the states decide. Uh, a Georgia fetal heartbeat ban may not be a, something that people in California want. California's unfettered abortion on demand may not be what Georgia wants, that the founders are were geniuses, way smarter than we are, and the reality is that we should allow uh, the states in the union to have 50 statewide positions on this issue, and uh, you cannot prohibit someone from traveling state to state. If someone lives in a pro-life state and wants to go to a pro-abortion state and get an abortion, you can't prohibit that. In fact, you know, there was a lot of media outrage about Idaho supposedly passing such a law to prohibit the interstate travel for abortion. It was too good to be true, of course. What it actually was was a law that uh, says a uh, someone who is not a parent or guardian cannot transport a child across state lines to get an abortion without parental consent. That was the actual law in Idaho. The media, of course, did not cover that truthfully at all. There are ways to do this. Let me use that as a jumping off point here for something I wanted to talk about. So in Iowa, or not Iowa, Idaho. In Idaho, the state legislature passed a law, and the media said it was a law that prohibited individuals, made it a crime to go across state lines for an abortion. That was the headline. It was covered by the national news networks. It was covered by newspapers. That was the headline that, Idaho made it against the law to cross state lines to have an abortion. That was not what the law actually said. What the law actually said was it was against the law for someone to take a minor across state lines for an abortion without parental consent. So someone who was not the minor's parent or guardian was not allowed to take the minor out of state for an abortion without the parent or guardian's consent. That's what the law actually said. The media did not cover it that way. The media covered it as it was against the law to go across state lines for an abortion if you lived in Idaho, which simply wasn't true. That gets me to this New York Times article with the very facetious headline, although they're serious, how a campaign against transgender rights mobilized conservatives. The subtitle tells you everything you need to know. Defeated on same-sex marriage, the religious right went searching for an issue that would re-energize supporters and donors. The campaign that followed has stunned political leaders across the spectrum. That's right, you see. It was conservatives who did this. My question is, how could conservatives go after transgender rights 
without those rights first being advanced. This is like the gas stove situation. The New York Times claimed that Republicans were hauling gas stoves into the culture war. Well, what was the precipitating event, though? It was the Democrats deciding to ban gas stoves. Republicans would never have made gas stoves an issue but for Democrats deciding to ban them. And somehow it was Republicans who were dragging them into the culture war, and the same here. Uh, Democrats won on gay marriage before the Supreme Court. They couldn't win democratically. In fact, they kept losing democratically, but they were able to get Anthony Kennedy to give them what they wanted. And then they immediately, once they had that, started rushing towards transgender rights. Now, now that men can marry men, we now need to allow men to become women. As an aside here, there's a growing movement within the gay rights community to distance themselves from the transgender community because a lot of men who might be somewhat effeminate and identify as gay are being told by the transgender advocates that actually you're women and you should have the surgeries and take the hormonal replacements and uh, you see gay culture threatened now by transgender culture, which is kind of funny when you think about it. I saw a comedian the other day saying it, it is the LGBTQ community is is actually somewhat mutually incompatible um, you have the lesbians and gays are two different things, and then both of them are being told by the trans community that you can either uh, have something added or have something cut off when the other two are like, nope, we're good as we are. It, it's just very, very incompatible, the transgender issue. But nonetheless, you, you have had this movement advance itself and have people believe that men can now become girls. You can put boys in girls' bathrooms. You can put Uh, men inside women's prisons, male prisoners and female prisoners, uh, penitentiaries, and guess what? There's going to be a pregnancy. There's going to be a rape, but the man identifies as a woman, so how is this possible? The, The New York Times play here is essentially to tell smug liberals that their worldview is right. I mean, this. let's just get to the gist of this. When the Supreme Court declared a constitutional right to same-sex marriage nearly eight years ago, social conservatives were set adrift. The ruling stripped them of an issue they had used to galvanize rank-and-file supporters and big donors, and it left them searching for a cause that, like opposing gay marriage, would rally the base and raise the movement's profile on a national stage. We knew we needed to find an issue that the candidates were comfortable talking about, said Terry Schilling, the president of American Principles Project, a social conservative advocacy group, and we threw everything at the wall. What has stuck, somewhat unexpectedly, is the issue of transgender identity, particularly among young people. Today, the effort to restrict transgender rights has supplanted same-sex marriage as an animating issue for social conservatives at a pace that has stunned political leaders across the spectrum. It has reinvigorated a network of conservative groups, increased fundraising, and set the agenda in school boards and state legislatures. You know why this is an issue? It's not because conservatives went in search of fundraising. And Terry Schilling, who I know he's a good guy, probably should not speak to the New York Times. It's become an issue because it's happening and people don't like it. It's become an issue because people are losing their jobs if they don't want to play the pronoun game. It's becoming an issue because Christians in America are being sidelined as bigots and bullies 
if they don't embrace a worldview antithetical to their religion. This is not a theological point, but you need to understand just this aspect of theology. Christians believe that God makes people male and female. The word in Genesis 1 that's used is bara or barat, it is a word that only applies to God. It means to divinely create. Uh, this word is never used in the Bible for people. It's only used in the Bible for God. And so it says God, bara, God creates, divinely creates us male and female, which means we're not allowed to create ourselves male and female. So when you see an, an ideology that says, yes, we can, that's antithetical to Christians. They didn't need this. This was not a political issue because they lost same-sex marriage in the Supreme Court. It's a political issue because the left decided to advance on this front and advance aggressively on this front once they won gay marriage. Let me just read you this from Jonah Goldberg. It was This is he's his tweets on the story. I think the article gets the causality almost perfectly backwards. It wasn't the right's defeat that launched the trans stuff as a political issue. It was the left's success and need for a new cause, which in turn invited the conservative backlash. Just as a chronological fact, the issue didn't start with the GOP opposing trans athletes in sports. The issue started with the issue pushing trans athletes in sports. You can say that's good, bad, or mixed, but you can't start with the right's reaction as the start. This is a pattern going back decades. Progressives push an idea forward, and when they meet resistance from conservatives, progressives in the media declare, look what the right is starting. Suddenly, the forces pushing change claim to be victims of conservatives trying to impose their values on those who are actually trying to impose their values. I mean, just this year, the media and Biden administration introduced the idea of banning gas stoves. Republicans reacted, and the media ran to the battlements to mockingly declare the rights launched a new front in the culture war. You can't have it both ways. You can't take pride in being the forces of change and progress and then claim to be the victims in the culture war every time you meet resistance. I mean, you can, clearly can have it both ways because that's what happens all the time. You just shouldn't have it both ways. And that ultimately is the issue here. The left advances on the culture front. The right responds as, oh, the right's the culture warrior. Look at them trying to drag all this to the culture. We're not the ones doing it. I don't know a single person on the right who wants to fight about boys in girls' bathrooms, but they have to because the left says boys can go pee in the girls' bathroom. I don't know a single conservative who wants to fight about boys beating girls' sports, but they have to because the left thinks boys with their testosterone and competitive physical advantage can do so, and there's nothing wrong with it. No one on the right wanted to fight these issues. They have to, and now the left vilifies them as culture warriors for just wanting to preserve the status quo. And the New York Times completely deludes its audience, who willfully want to be deluded, and take the most sympathetic framing that the right isn't really sincere on this. It's just a gimmick to raise money. That's their angle. The right's just trying to raise money on this. And you know, when you look at Don Jr. and Bud Light, or you look at the NRCC and Bud Light, yes, there are some on the right who don't really care about the issue. They're just trying to make money off of you. But a lot of very sincere people, myself included, care passionately about this issue because we realize it is wrong biologically, it is wrong scientifically, and it is wrong morally and ethically to have our daughters have to compete physically against the boy who's decided he's a girl, in addition to the mental health issues of the boy who thinks he's a girl. But the left doesn't want to be honest when it comes to who started it, who's pushing it, and what's actually happening. And they have the New York Times to give them air cover. 
Thankfully, we have groups like Patriot Mobile pushing back on the nonsense, from battling wokes on school boards to battling the left across America. And all you have to do is take your cell phone business to them by going to patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. So all you have to do, take your cell phone service to them. You can even take your existing number to them, and you get guaranteed great service. In fact, your current cell phone provider probably uses the same cell towers anyway. You can go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, put in your home address, and see all the way down to your house how good the 5G is, the data, the voice, everything you need to get started. If you have an unlocked phone, you can even take that there or get a new one from them. You can get all the latest phones from Patriot Mobile, but you keep your phone number if you want it. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric. You can also call them 972-PATRIOT. Tell them I sent you. You get guaranteed great service. You get free activation with my name. You get great discounts. You're a veteran, a first responder, and an RA member, a teacher, so much more. And then you are helping the causes you care about. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of their profits to the Second Amendment movement, the pro-life movement, to conservative candidates battling wokes around the country. They're very effective. They You get a great return on your investment. All you have to do is take your soul service to them. PatriotMobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Hi there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. Let's see if I can get Daniel in here before the end. Welcome, Daniel. How are you? Hey, Eric, I wanted to bring up something that uh, I mentioned to you the other day. Um, I tried to question a pastor um, in the Athens, Georgia area about their church's stance on, you know, same-sex marriage and homosexuality. At the same time, I know that church's pastor um, preaches to a large mega number of people every week with two services. But the thing is, they're pro-life. But yet, when I ask him the question about where does their church stand on sexuality and same-sex marriage, he says, I can't comment on this issue at this time because it's an ongoing thing. And I said, well, it's going to be an ongoing thing. He goes, I think the best thing for you to do is to focus on yourself and not worry about (laughs) something like that. But the thing is, I'm not going to be a part of a church or listen to a church to a pastor that can't answer straight up answer my question. You know, what are you right. hiding? I mean, it's a simple, straight-out answer, yes or no, or where would you stand, not dodge the question. Yeah, particularly that one. I, I would I would be a little bit hesitant uh, to go to a church where a pastor cannot stake out those issues of biblical sexual ethic. You know, at the end of the day, Christianity is kind of controversial. I mean, the, the leader— of the denomination of Christianity, of the faith of Christianity. He was nailed to a cross and executed because he offended a lot of people. Uh, At some point, I mean, Christianity offends people, and it doesn't matter how winsome you are, uh, you're going to alienate people by standing on the ground of biblical orthodoxy. Uh, You can do it lovingly. Absolutely, you can do it lovingly. You should. But you can't walk away from some issues within Scripture. It's like, uh, what do you think about it? Can, is is was Jesus physically resurrected from there? Well, I don't want to take a. I I, I don't want to alienate people who thinks he was. Well, you know, you can't actually do that. And some of these issues, some will say, well, they're second order issues. We shouldn't squall them. No, no, no. I mean, the the very first issues laid out in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, I would argue to you, are not secondary issues. Uh, They matter greatly. Uh, So be weary where you go.
Um, you know, there's a larger issue here, too, with a lot of people get tired of or don't wish to be a part of a fight over culture, and they're going to be made to care. Somebody wrote a book one time called You Will Be Made to Care, and the whole purpose of that phrase was that at some point you're not going to be given the issue to sit on the sidelines. You will be forced to take a position. You will be made to care. And in being made to care, you better be sure what you believe because you will be called out, tested, and perhaps punished for your beliefs. So are you prepared to do that? By the way, breaking news here at the end of the show, Ron DeSantis has just announced he's going to South Carolina on Wednesday to Spartanburg and North Charleston, two events scheduled as he begins a campaign tour waiting for the Florida legislature to pass a law to allow him to run for president without resigning, which hasn't happened yet. 